First Timothy chapter 2, let's begin in verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Continuing into chapter 3, verse 1, he says, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let's pray together. Lord, we know you have great intentions for these verses in our lives this morning, uniquely for each one of us. We pray that your Holy Spirit, that he would be our teacher, that he would bring application uniquely as only as he can uh, in our lives, Lord. And we pray that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word, Lord. We pray that we'd be listening to your Spirit's leading and direction as he brings these verses back to our remembrance in the future to obey these things, however he chooses to lead us. We thank you for the privilege of being built to build our lives upon your word. We know, Lord, you said that if we continue in your word, we're your disciples indeed. And so we want to do that as a family here today and continue studying your word as we go through it in its entirety. We pray, Lord, that, uh, let us, we, that you would let us know regarding anything that we need to encourage one another about regarding this passage after we get done studying it and throughout the week. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We are right in the middle of this book where the Apostle Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy, by the Spirit of God, to instruct him regarding how he should conduct himself in the house of God. It's very important for us to understand the purpose of why Paul wrote this. This, wasn't, this was a personal letter in some respects, but mainly it was, a, it was beyond a personal letter into how Timothy should conduct himself in the house of God. We're told that explicitly in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul writes by the Spirit that, that he wants him to know how he should conduct himself in the house of God. And so he's told him thus far to remain in Ephesus. Timothy didn't want to remain in Ephesus. He wanted to leave. <laughs> and so Paul's trying to encourage him. This is what God's uh, leading you to do because you're engaged in my oversight of, of the church and, and you're serving in that capacity. And so I'm, I'm wanting you to stay there. You need to stay there because there's certain things that you need to do and set in order as, as the leader in that church. And so basically he wants Timothy to lead. You know, as I've said many times as we study this book, to pastor up instead of man up, pastor up and to lead. And, and these things are difficult for any person to change in a church. Notwithstanding Timothy's kind of natural uh, fear and his timidity and his intimidation, perhaps, by these older men who were doing these things and saying these things in the church, 
that, that Paul was calling, and ultimately, obviously, God was calling Timothy through Paul to correct. And so he had to have the boldness to do that. And the first thing he told him was to not tolerate false doctrine, that these controversies about the law of Moses and these endless genealogies about which he spoke in chapter 1 were, were purposeless, that were an absolute waste of time. Paul's also encouraged Timothy regarding his own calling because he knew that when Timothy heard about his calling, about how God is the one that called him, God is the one that enabled him and put him into the ministry, that that would resonate with Timothy to encourage him that God has called him into the ministry and enabled him to do all that God had called him to do, even up to uh, making these hard decisions and hard corrective uh, measures in this, in this church. He's also told them, as we saw last week, to engage corporately in prayer. He says, pray for your leaders. He listed four different ways that he has called the church to pray for leaders, and not just secular leaders, but all leaders that are in authority. Because we're told in Romans that all authority has been set up by God, even the secular governing authorities that appear to not really have a connection with God, we're told in his word that they do a very real connection with God because God set them up and, and they're instruments of God in relating, related to bringing discipline or, or righteousness within a, a country or a land or, or a city. And then lastly, we saw last week Paul deal with some outward appearance issues and he mainly dealed with, dealt with uh, women's appearance. And of course, it carries over to men uh, as well because these principles... Uh, regarding men, a woman being dress, dressing modestly and, and not trying to cause attention to themselves and having, not having an outward focus but have an inward focus and, and, and be known for what comes through their life related to, to Christ's likeness rather than being known for something outward, that carries over to men's lives too. And so here he is talking about these things that should happen in the congregation and in the church and so forth. And uh, he's, in, he's encouraging Timothy that there's going to be times when you'll have to make a decision and you'll have to lead and you'll have to correct some of these things. But keep in mind, I've called you to be where you're at. And, and, and so it was incumbent upon Timothy to submit to that. And so now today, as we get into the rest of chapter 2 and part of chapter 3, Paul continues to discuss these things that are supposed to occur in the local church. And again, we've said this multiple times. It's not up to leaders to decide how the church should function. There are things that God lays out in his word, principles and standards by which the, the church should function. And so it's not up to them just to decide however we're going to do things. We're just going to do them according to our preference. That is not what the word says. Acts 2.42 lays out what the church should be about along with uh, Ephesians chapter 4 regarding it should be a place that is a, a place of equipping and, and dis- making disciples. The Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations, not merely to make converts. And God knows that a church has to be a certain way and able to produce uh, disciples. And so often in so many churches today, too, too many churches, uh, there, are ch- there are these people that are so concerned with making converts that they are doing things and saying things that are the, the, to the neglect of producing disciples. And, and so that should never be. And one of those things is... is uh, unfortunately, not focusing on the Word of God to the extent to which God's called us to focus on the Word of God. Later, he's going to tell Timothy, preach the Word. You know, it's not preaching about the Word, from the Word. Preach the Word itself. And, and to convince and rebuke and exhort with all long suffering and patience. 
So that, that's, that requires a leader to stand up and say the things from the word of God boldly and include everything that's in it and be able to say, this is what God's standard is. And whether you come back or not is not my concern because the ultimate concern is not getting numbers. The ultimate concern is making disciples. And sometimes it requires a leader to say things that may kind of, uh, you know, make the numbers go down. <laughs> but he has to say those things. And so that's why Jesus said, you're not to build the church. You're not to add to the, to the church. I build the church. I add to the church. And so that protects a leader from being afraid to say the difficult things from God's word that he's called us to say. Now notice in verse 11 and 12, Paul begins with the role of women in the church. He says in verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now it may take us weeks and months and years to dig through all the, the, the truth that are in these two verses and just explore all the, oh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, but it is in God's word here. And, and I didn't come up with this. I didn't, uh, uh, you know, make this up. This is in God's word. And it must be important if God included it in his word. So we're going to look at it. And I think what Paul's referring to here, what he's dealing with here, is that there is a certain order within the local church. There's, a lo- there's order in a family. There's order in a, in a society. God has set up order. He's a God of order. He does decently, things decently and in order. And so women here, according to Scripture... They're not in a spiritual context, are not to teach or have authority over a man. That's what Paul clearly says here. And so teaching is, what is teaching then? Teaching is reading the the Bible, it's explaining what it means, and it's applying it to people's lives. We complicate it, make it into all these things that uh, it's not, but that's what it is. And so women are not to do that. Uh, related to uh, men receiving from them or having a spiritual authority over uh, men. And so, but that, that doesn't mean that they're less second-class Christians. It doesn't mean that they're not uh, qualified. It doesn't mean they're not gifted. There's a lot of things that obviously women do better than men. Can I hear the women say amen to that? Can I hear the men say amen to that? Okay, there we go. Uh, and so it's obviously... God has an order for things, and he set things up a certain way. And, and, and women are free to teach other women. In fact, they're instructed to. I like to read a portion from Titus chapter 2 where women are told this. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. He's speaking to Titus here. That the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, and the word of, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And so the women are commanded to teach the younger women. So women are, 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 can teach women, of course. Also, they have very um, great gifts, and, and, and all the way up to any gift that a man could have, uh, you know, the, whatever the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy. I mean, we're told about we're told in First uh, Corinthians chapter eleven that women are free to prophesy, and so women can prophesy. I mean, that's what bigger gift could there be besides speaking for God? That's huge to be able to speak on God's behalf. So they can prophesy. That uh, obviously uh, they can um, 
teach children and, and so forth. And so it's not a thing of they're lesser than men or they're, more, they're less important or they're less gifted or, or any of those things. It has nothing to do with value, hasn't, has anything to do with abilities or gifts. Um, and, and we have to look at these things. And, I mean, either the Bible's going to be our standard or it's not. And we have to look at the, what Scripture says and say, look, we're, no matter what the culture says, no matter what other churches do, we're responsible for doing what God's called us to do, how he, we see things in his word. And so it is, it, you may see women pastors in other churches. This verse, these two verses contradict that, clearly contradict that. Now, what people do to try to get out of this is talk about kind of, well, it was the culture of Paul's day. The culture was so much against women and it is true that women didn't have as much of a say in the culture. They weren't really allowed to be a witness in a court of law. Jesus elevated women. He, he appeared to women first at his resurrection. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we know that it's, it's evidence that it happened. Because if you were going to try to make something up, you wouldn't in that culture say that you appeared to women first. Because in that culture, they didn't have much of a, a standing regarding their testimony. But Jesus elevated them. He gave them great prominence. They had great prominence regarding their service to him. And, and you look at the end of, of the book of Romans, and Paul lists many, many women that were very, very critically important to the success of his ministry. And so, uh, obviously, very free to, to serve in, in so many ways. But this really has to do with authority. And God has chosen men to lead the church. God has chosen the man to lead the marriage. Uh, and so it's by his design. There is an order, and God has chosen men to have that authority within the church. And so there's a mistake sometimes that because of this, women could misunderstand and think that they're the only ones that are in submission related to this. But men are in submission in any role that they're in within the, the local church. They're in submission too. Everyone's under authority. Even within the Godhead, you have Jesus being subject to the Father, there is a hierarchical uh, relationship within the Godhead that goes beyond the vanishing point of our understanding. But it is true. Everyone is, is, in, is under authority and everyone is submitted to the authorities that God has placed uh, over us. Now, some people say, well, Paul said, I do not permit. So this was Paul's preference here. But it's, we're free to do it, but Paul's preference. No, Paul, as we saw, he started this letter with Paul the Apostle. He didn't start with, Paul, your old chum, you know, and it's just this friendship and it's just his preference. This is, again, chapter 3, verse 15 tells us the purpose. He wrote this book to, to, to let Timothy know how to conduct himself in the house of God. And so this isn't Paul's opinion. This isn't Paul's preference. This is inspired by the Spirit, and it's not just a cultural thing for that time. And we know that because of verses 13 and 14. Look with me there. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So if it's a cultural thing, it's the culture of the garden. <laughs> you know, it's, the, it's that culture. And, and so Paul is superseding all of the cultural arguments by going back to the garden. And what's interesting about Genesis chapter 2 Verse 18, when he talks about woman being a helpmate to man, is that's before the fall. This isn't a result of the fall. This happened before the fall where there was an order, and woman was a helpmate to man. Now, God looked at man and said, you need help. <laughs> you definitely need help. He looked at man being alone. He said, this isn't good. Uh, and, he, so he, and so man is incomplete. So 
man can't get prideful about, oh, I have women's a helpmate. Well, that's because you needed help, bro. <laughs> you know, let's, let's just really look at this carefully. And, and, but this was before the fall. And so the leadership role at that time and into today is that man's the leader of the home. And so what Eve did was Eve uh, kind of reversed that kind of role. And she took the lead. She took the leadership role. And she wasn't called to do that. She wasn't gifted for that. And, and she was deceived. Adam wasn't deceived. He was stupid. <laughs> I got your attention. He was. He was stupid because he wasn't deceived, but he decided to go with what his wife wanted him to do and instead of doing what he knew what was right. And, and so what's interesting about that whole arrangement is that who does God hold accountable for the fall of man? Was it Eve because she sinned first or was it Adam? All through the scriptures, we see that it was Adam that God ultimately holds accountable for the fall. He had the leadership role. He was the ultimate, the one ultimately responsible for that. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 tells us this. Therefore, as, though, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And in that, in that passage, the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit, is saying that uh, through one man, that is Adam, sin entered the human condition. So it is that through one man, the God-man, Jesus, that we all can receive the gift of eternal life and thus be righteous. So Eve violated God's order and the result was horrific. And so the very last thing that Paul is basing this decision on is on culture because he goes back in time to the very beginning and he shows that there is supposed to be an order and that order is violated when women take a leadership role within the church. And so that's why we're going to see in a moment that when he talks about overseers and he talks about those that are called to lead the church, that they're supposed to be the, the, the husband of one wife and to lead their home well. Who's he talking about, men or women there? He's talking about men. So he's already laid this out and he's going to get more specific as he continues through here. So that's, that's why we, we won't ever, you will never have a, a woman teach from here on a Sunday morning or, or anything like that because of these verses. It's not because we're chauvinistic or we think that men are better or superior or more gifted or any of those things. It's because we believe there's an order that God has set up and, and we want to obey him in it. Now notice God gives a promise to women in verse 15. He says, nevertheless, she, that is woman, woman, will be saved in, in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So in case women were kind of concerned about their, their influence within the church and within uh, you know, the culture, God wants them to know that their, that their influence through childbearing, those that, can, that are allowed to, to bring forth children, they have an incredible, incredible influence. And the word saved there in verse 15 is better translated preserved. And so really you need to think of the word influence in understanding verse 15. Because that's what God is talking about. He's talking about the woman's influence. Because what he's just been speaking about is spiritual influence. But what, what uh, uh, you know, environment has a greater influence related to a permanent ministry of imparting spiritual truth than a family? 
passing on to their kids. The, the woman being a godly woman, and that's why he adds there, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control, because their spiritual influence diminishes as their godly character diminishes. And it increases as their godly character uh, expands. Their spiritual influence within the, the, the home and the church and the culture. Nobody affects people more in their Christian uh, pilgrimage than women do, godly women that are mothers that are raising their kids. I think of Pastor Chuck Smith who started Calvary Chap- the Calvary Chapel movement. He always talks about his mom. I think her name was Maud. That tells you that it's been a while. <laughs> uh, not too many Mauds around. Um, but, and if you're named Maud, I apologize for that. It just happened to happen this, uh, this week. But, you know, his mother used to read him the scriptures while she was ironing. And she would say to him, you know, read back the, 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 the passages. And he would struggle because he couldn't get the, the words were kind of backwards. He was so little and he was trying to read the passages and he would memorize scripture after scripture after scripture. That woman had the greatest influence in Pastor Chuck's life than any person that ever had an influence in his life was her. So her influence was, was maximized because of her relationship with her son and because she was a godly woman. So that influence was preserved uh, through her, her re- relationship. And so I believe that's what he's getting at there. Now, Paul gets in chapter 3 here to uh, the, the, the context or the discussion or the, the content of bishops or overseers. He says, this is a faithful saying. This is the second time we've seen faithful saying in the book. I told you there were a handful of them. If a man desires the position of a bishop... He desires a good work. And first we see, you know, a man desires, and it's a desire that God puts on someone's heart. And uh, it's something that is something that is right from the throne of God. That he calls somebody, a man, to be in position as an overseer, as a bishop. who would be more like a, a pastor or, or an elder here. And he says, it's a good work. And you have to remember the context into which Paul is writing. Because this, at this time, there was a lot of persecution going on. And to be a leader in that time was, was having a death sentence for the most part. And it's just going to increase and increase as the church went on, as persecution was going to get ramped up through the Roman Empire. So here Paul is saying he desires a good work. It's good. It's noble. It, it, today in our kind of culture, it's, it's well, more, a lot more well-respected than it was back then. And so he's encouraging him. It's a good work. It's very good. You remaining in Ephesus and doing all the things that I'm telling you to do, Timothy, even though they're difficult, it's good, and you need to be faithful to it. Now, Paul's going to list 15 things here, and 14 of these things are going to relate to character. Only one has to do with gifting, and, and that's interesting to me because what is usually the priority that, that many churches and movements and denominations are looking for when they're looking for uh, ordaining pastors or any of these types of relationships, they're looking at so often not these things. They're looking at education. They have to go to cemetery, I mean seminary, and they have to go to all these things and they have to be, have this whole long list of amazing gifts and they have to be charismatic and they have to be able to hold the room and they have to be able to draw people to themselves and they have to be a great order. Obviously, you're, you know that that's not what we're looking at <laughs> by this description. Um, but God does things differently than man. God has always had a different priority related to who he chooses. And he does so so that he can get glory. I mean, all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, I think of David being chosen. 
The prophet Samuel. I mean, Samuel. I don't think the, the Bible says anything negative at all about Samuel that I'm aware of. And, and this man was led by the Spirit. He was anointed by God. And he passed through all the sons of Jesse. And he assumed that, that it was all these other men, all these other uh, sons, because of many other things that, that God m- wasn't looking at. And at the end, he told him that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And God knew that David had character. That's what all these 14 things are related to. Character. Because he, he had already been cultivating a relationship with God, as being faithful to what God's already had called him to do, related to taking care of the sheep and, and working for his father. But all through the Old Testament, these people didn't think they were qualified. Look at Moses. He doesn't even want to say anything because I can't speak. God knew what he was getting. And that's what the, when, we, when God chooses anybody to do anything, God knows who he's getting. And he knows he's getting someone very flawed and imperfect and uh, in great need of help and unqualified. He does all of that on purpose. So that we'll be dependent upon him. And because when he does something through our lives, he'll get the credit. I think of the 12 disciples. We're told very clearly that Jesus prayed all night before he chose those original disciples. He cho- and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. He only chose 12 to make sure that it was, and he did an amazing work, that, that he would get the glory for that. But look who he chose. These guys are complaining about who's the greatest. I mean, would you choose people that are fighting about who's the greatest? They're fishermen. They're, they're mostly. They're fishermen that, that was a very low job. Even today in Israel, that's a low job. And, and, and the, but that was going to be used in their lives that I've made you fishers of men. That they would be looking to God as their sufficiency, not their background, not their pedigree, not their education. God's very, very concerned about how he does things, not just the end result. And sometimes in our church culture, we just look at the end result and the ends can justify the means sometimes. And God says, no, the means is just as important as the end. And so uh, that's what his priority is. And I love this because he shows what his priority is for who he's looking at. There's a saying we have in Calvary Chapel called calling is everything. That's how it's not called that. It's just what we say. Calling is everything related to leadership. Because as if I'm called to be an overseer, I will study to show myself approved. I will have a heart for people. I will have godly character. I will be a servant. I won't be impressed with myself. I won't be impressed with what I know. I will be servant-hearted. And, and sometimes we can work backwards and we can say those that we want to be in a certain position in leadership, we can say, if I could just get them to study, if I could just get, get them to have a heart for people, if I could just have them get godly character and have, not be impressed with themselves, then they could be called to be and do this. We have it backwards. God says, I call people. And then you verify who I've called. And then that way it'll make sense to everyone. So when the time comes and when it's made official, everyone says, oh, I saw that coming a long time ago. That's not because everyone else just saw it for the first time recently. That means that God's been working and they've already been serving in that capacity. And, and, and so that's it should be an obvious thing, but it should be something that God produces. You notice Paul doesn't say to develop these things to Timothy. He doesn't tell Timothy, hey, this is what I want to see in, in leaders. You need to develop these things in people. He doesn't say that. He says, recognize what's already happening between them and God. I can't produce that in someone. Nobody can. God produces that, and so we're just called to recognize those things as God produces those things in people's lives. And it protects the church, it protects the leaders, it protects everybody. So, lastly, before we move on to these character traits, 
I want to say one thing. Sometimes I hear people talk about these, these standards for an overseer, and we're going to get into, uh, Lord willing, uh, next time regarding deacons uh, and what their qualifications should be. And we talk about it in terms of, well, there's a higher standard for leaders because of these things. But I don't believe that. I believe that it's God's will for every man and women, woman, you know, uh, in this context here, to be these things. It's not that he wants leaders to be all these things, but everyone else can be lower in their character. He's saying, verify for these leaders that they already are what I want every person to be. And that will help us. Because sometimes God's calling us to a place in ministry, and we're like, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that because, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not at this higher level of character. He's called everyone to be at that high level of character. He just calls us to be like Jesus, and that's all this is. He, say, he begins in verse 2, he says, a bishop then must be blameless. Now, it doesn't say perf- perfect, he says blameless. He's talking about where his, res- his reputation is above reproach, that no one could point to anything and make a sincere accusation that there's a consistent pattern in that person's life that's problematic. And so he says he must be blameless, the husband of one wife. That literally means a one-woman man. Get the, an amen from the ladies here. One-woman man. Now, sometimes you'll hear in contexts where men are can being considered to be pastors or leaders or whatever, and, and they say, well, I've had a, a, a divorce in my past, and so I'm disqualified, and you know that, that divorce was, was based on biblical grounds, and so I'm forever disqualified. All these character traits are present tense character traits. It's talking about what's going on at, at the moment right now, because all these things need to continue to be in place in a leader's life. And if they fail to be a continuous pattern in their lives, then, then, they, then they've disqualified themselves for being in this role. So this is all, it's talking about present tense situation here. He's saying that this man should not be a, a, a multi, have a multiplicity of women in his life in an unhealthy way. That's what he's saying. He needs to be temperate, which means to be not greatly swayed by his emotions, that he is steady. That's really the sense and the core of this word, steadiness. He's not going to be making decisions because he's going to be making decisions within the context of the church. He's not going to be making those decisions based on emotional, you know, an emotional roller coaster. That he's making these, these decisions based on spiritual direction from God's word and through his spirit. He says sober-minded. So he's not under the influence of anything else but God. He's thinking clearly. He's not uh, having all these other influences, whether they be substances or, or uh, anything else, alcohol, whatever. Uh, there can be a lot of things that can create my mind to not be sober-minded. But for us to be able to think clearly, and again, this is, this is true for all of us here, to be sober-minded, of good behavior, not someone that's known for bad behavior, questionable things, things where uh, people could be stumbled by their behavior, those things should not be a regular part at all of, of uh, uh, an overseer or bishop's um, life. Hospitable, I like that, hospitable. Because this presupposes that the leader is going to be accessible. And a lot of leaders, unfortunately, aren't accessible. And I know in larger ministries, it obviously gets harder and harder to be accessible. But this assumes that you're going to be welcoming people in your home, this assumes that you're going to be uh, helping people's needs, being a servant, anticipating people's needs. You know, we're, we, we're here serving people, whoever that walks through those doors, we're here to serve. Whether they come once or they come 
50 years or for, forever, as long until the Lord comes back. So uh, we want to be welcoming of people and, and, and making them comfortable and sensing what their needs are and, and offering help and trying to be sensitive to, to what their needs are. And then he says, able to teach. This is the one characteristic that is not for everybody and that has to be in place for uh, a bishop. Um, and this is, this is a gift. So obviously, who, who provides that? These character traits are not provided by any leader. They're produced by the spirit in a person's life that a leader recognizes. But so is this gift, the gift of teaching. Someone has to be able to teach. And it's assuming that you'll be able to teach in a way that will bless God's people. You remember when the Lord Jesus was publicly restoring the apostle Peter uh, subsequent to his resurrection. This is when Peter said, I'm going fishing. <laughs> and everyone else followed him. And they're going fishing. And he calls out to them. And, he, and you know, throw your nets on the other side of the boat for a catch. I've heard that somewhere before. I think that's the Lord. And then they come to shore and he's making breakfast for them. And then he says to them, Peter, do you love me? You know, and you can do a whole study on all the different Greek words he uses for love there. But basically he equates Peter's love for him based on how he feeds and tends the sheep. And for leaders, that is a a huge, huge priority. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're told that there's apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. You can't be a pastor without being a teacher. You can be a teacher without being a pastor. There is a separate gift of teaching. But if you're called to be a pastor, you're called to be a teacher. And so Paul says to Timothy, make sure that these people that you're recognizing have that gift to teach. Verse 3, not given to wine, so not known for uh, being under the influence of alcohol, not violent. Now that's a big disqualifier. Obviously, if you're violent, I used to have a huge temper. I, I, I knocked a hole into a, a wall in our house. Not when I was married to Sandy. She's like, I didn't ever heard that before. Uh, growing up, you know, growing up, just boom, hitting the, the wall there and, and having, you know, I would have a long fuse, but when, my, when I went off, it, 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 it wasn't pretty. That can't happen. That we can't have leaders that are violent, obviously, towards their spouses, towards their children, towards anybody whatsoever. There needs to be meekness, which is power under control, coming through our lives by the Spirit. Not greedy for money. Wow. Where I can go a million different directions with not greedy for money for leaders. I bet you you can too. There are, there are, some of them are on TV. Not all of them that are on TV, but some of them are on TV acting like God's broke. And, and that, you know, he needs you. Without you, this can't happen. You know, well, are, where are you trusting God? God's the one that supplies our needs for any ministry or for any life. And so he's not greedy. He's not trying to live above everybody else and not trying to have every possible uh, comfort in this life because it disconnects him from the people that are hurting because there's always going to be people that are hurting in every way but also financially. And so if we are so far above living at a level, trust me, we don't have to worry about that here. There's no temptation for that yet. Uh, But, um, you know, if we're living so high above everybody else, how much empathy can we have? And I just say this for myself. Every time that I think about being wealthy, which I've never been in terms of how we judge it in this, in this country, I never really picture myself being that fruitful for the Lord. I don't know about you, but I, I don't know that I would have a great desire for, for winning the lost or for serving or giving my life away of sacrifice. Now, I know that God does allow people to be wealthy that are believers that love the Lord, 
but it's very rare that he can trust people, that I can have an open hand, that he can put anything in it, and they can have it just as open the whole time for him to take it out of, of, of their hand, to be used for his purposes. It's very rare, but it does happen. And I'm, I mean, there is a gift of giving, we're told, in the scriptures, and I'm thankful for people that have that gift, but the leader can't be greedy for money. Contentness needs to mark his life. But gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, Gentleness has to happen in a a regular way through a leader's life because the Lord Jesus is gentle. And and all of us are called to be these things, like I said. But there has to be a gentleness, not quarrelsome, not just arguing about every little thing. If a person, if a man is argumentative and always wanting to debate all these things all the time and fight with people and be be contentious, then what are they going to do when they're overseeing the house of God and they're helping in that? They're going to be contentious with people. They're going to be fighting with other leaders. They're going to be, uh, you know, trying to be right all the time. I used to have to be, and my wife would say amen to this, in my early years as a Christian, I would just want to debate and debate theology and all these things, and I always had to be right. And we've, we've had Pastor Garth here a few times to teach, and a close friend of mine, and man, we used to go at it, debating, 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 fighting and fighting, and it would get pretty heated. And the Lord just convicted me on that so strongly. And what does this accomplish? What does this getting what good is this you know and the older I get in the Lord and the more I learn about his word the more I realize I don't know his word and the less I have this pride that I'm I have to be right and I know the truth about everything in God's word because I don't and I'm I'm growing and and so that's something that needs to be there in in all of our lives and, and especially those that are overseeing uh the, the house of of God but he says covetous we can't always it goes along with greedy for money can't always be wanting what someone else has that God hasn't called us to have. And so he says that shouldn't happen um, there. And then he says, one who rules his house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. Now, this doesn't mean that every leader's children have to be on fire for God and they w- that they will be on fire for God because God's given all of us a free will and we can cooperate with God or not in terms of how we uh, serve him and believe in him and, and, and have that connection with him. Uh, but with, with a leader, a leader has to have his house under control and has to have his children in submission. Even though their hearts may not be totally in it, they have to be in submission to his leadership in his home. And if he can't do that, notice he says in verse 5, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So obviously the, the rhetorical question is begging the answer. Uh, he can't. He can't take care of the church of God if he can't take care of his house. And so there's, there's this desire to be a man pleaser in all of us. And if a man is leading his home, God wants him to lead his home, and he's afraid to stand up to his, to his children, and he wants to be an old, you know, the best friend of the kids always and not be the father or not lead his, his, his home and his wife and all these things, then he's not going to be willing and able to do that within the context of the church because it gets nothing but harder when it comes to uh, those things within the church because you're not as intimate with people as you are in your family. And people don't know you as well. And, and if you're a man pleaser, you're going to have a hard time overseeing the things of the Lord in the house of God. That's why Paul wrote in uh, Galatians chapter 1, am I still trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Those two things are mutually exclusive. And so he's telling Timothy, verify that this, he's not saying cause it to happen. Timothy can't cause these things to happen. 
He's just saying verify that it's already there. Verse 6. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. And so he's saying not someone that is brand new. Obviously, it's hard for people to, some people to have positions of leadership because it goes to their head. Because they're, all, they, they're, they're impressed with themselves and what they're doing. They're meeting some need in their life that they've always had to be important. And so now they have this and now they're thinking that there's something. And they're the most dangerous people in the body of Christ. People that, that are uh, self-called or people that are in leadership or in areas of, of pastoral oversight prematurely. Even if they have the gifts, even if they have a lot of these things, if they're not ready, if they haven't been tested. He's going to get into uh, deacons being tested, and we'll see that next time. But even if, they've, even if they have all this godly character, they can't be a novice. They can't be brand new because they're, they're going to be puffed up with pride. And, and the reason why I think uh, this novice thing is in there is because Paul knows that if you're a novice, you haven't been used by God in a, in a significant way yet. You just haven't had that much history with God. So as you have this history with God and you're, you have this experience of being used by God, what happens when you start being used by God? You start realizing that it's not you. <laughs> and people try to thank you and they try to give you the credit and you're like, oh, no, no, no. I know for a fact because of my experience with these things, it wasn't me. It was totally the Lord. And so by the time you get to this place where you're overseeing things, you're not impressed with yourself. And you know that it's not you. You know that anything that comes out of your life is a result of him. It's not just something you're saying because it's the right thing to say. It's really true. You really sincerely mean it. And so he's saying verify those things. But it isn't limited to just how we focus and how we function within the church. He says in verse 7, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. The word outside there in verse 7 is talking about those outside the, the house of God. He must have a good testimony. In other words, he can't just look one way around God's people and have all these character traits that he's talking about. But if you were to interview somebody on the outside and, and ask them about that person's character, they'd say, do we have the same person? Are we talking about the same guy here? Because all these things that you're saying he is in church is not what we see out in, in the workplace. He's loving inside the church and among God's people. Uh, that, you know, you're telling me this, but in the workplace, he's not loving at all. He's short with people. He's impatient with people. He says you know, bad things about people, gossips about people. He's not responsible with his life. And he, he's all these things. He's a flake. He doesn't, he's not on time. He's not, he's not faithful. All those things he's saying, you need to verify that those things are going on on the outside. You need to find out his business dealings outside the church, who he does business with. How are those, how, what would they say about them? Very, very important. And he gives the warning there that it, if it doesn't happen this way, he'll fall into reproach. In other words, he's going to fall. He's going to fall and fall in front of everybody. And God would rather have us make our mistakes uh, and deal with these things beforehand instead of doing it in front of everybody. I think we'd all be in agreement that we'd prefer that for our lives as well. But then he says there's the snare of the devil. When we don't have godly character, then we provide opportunity for the enemy to cause havoc in our lives and in the lives of others through our lives. And that's what other leaders are trying to prevent by waiting on the Lord to make sure that these people, these leaders, have this godly character because they know it will cause harm to the sheep. 
They know that the sheep will, will be hurt by it. And they have a supernatural love and, and desire to bless the sheep. And so they want to prevent that. So God wants that, obviously, because it's his sheep more than anybody. And so he says, make sure that these things are in place so that he doesn't get, fall into the snare of the devil. So very important for us to see. Now, we're going to stop there today. And, and I, I, you know, we look at all this, these things because we're going through the scriptures and we cover everything that he covers. But what's important for us to see is that we're going to be in different situations in our lives. God isn't always going to call us to be in one particular church. He's going to move us on. And we need to know how God has set things up so that we can recognize that wherever we, wherever we are at, things are being done biblically and decently and in order. And that the, the premium that God places uh, on character for leaders is important no matter where we go. And that's important. Some of us in this room, I've heard your stories and you, I've shared my story about being hurt in the context of different churches because of character not being in place. And some of it has to do with uh, people not going by the scriptures and putting people you know, through, a, through another grid to verify that they are a certain way and it's not this, these verses. Or they are careless in it or they do it too soon or people stop being accountable within leadership and their, their relationship starts to go downhill or they're, they're, they just haven't had them a model of how things should be. So we need to know that God's priority is to have uh, men leading in a church that have character. So if you're a man here, uh, God calls you to be these things just as much as any leader. And if you're a woman here, he's called you to be these things just as much as any leader. And so as, as, as we are, you know, look at these things, it need, God, wants us to, God, God wants us to have uh, comfort related to where he's placed us. Because we've tried very, very hard to be patient. And very, very hard to wait to make sure that people are these things already in place by the Spirit before we place them in any area of influence. And so it's important for us to see that it's not up to us what the qualifications are. It's not up to us how the church should function. God's laid it all out, and so we need to cooperate with that. And if we do, then he'll be glorified, and thus we'll be blessed as a result of it. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your great grace, and, and we, we do, Lord, want to be these character traits. We want you to produce these things in us, Lord, as we yield to you. So we ask, Lord, that you would continue to work in our lives in this way, to help us to uh, be like you, Jesus. We want to be like you. We pray, Lord, for every leader in this church. We pray that they would remain uh, usable and godly. And we thank you, Lord, that you're gracious with us. You know that when you get us, you get a project, and we know that you never finish with that project. So we're grateful for that. But Lord, we pray that this church and any church that we're a part of in the future would have leaders that can be trusted because of their character. We thank you that you do the work, that we don't have to produce these things in people's lives, that you do it by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you create a safe place for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.